the photo behind me, if I have it right, was taken two weeks ago yesterday. Is that right? Tomorrow. Two weeks ago tomorrow. For those of you that don't know these uh, folks on the screen, uh, Brian and Debbie Morris uh, used to sit right over here, and they, uh, not too many months ago, uh, moved to Florida, just north of Orlando, to be with their uh, children and, and grandchildren. And this photo was not taken in Orlando. That doesn't look like Orlando, does it? And this photo was not taken here. Uh, this photo was taken in North Carolina in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And I have it on the screen in front of you to tell you a story, and I got their permission and their permission if you're sitting here today like wondering, hey, are we going to end up on the screen here? You might, but I'll get your permission. I'll get your permission um, if you end up on the screen here and me telling stories about you. So Robert and Sarah, who are right over here, raise your hands, guys, um, they were in North Carolina um, uh, two weeks ago. And Brian and Debbie live just north of Orlando. I googled it. It's about a nine-hour drive. And so Brian and Debbie uh, got in their car, and they drove on Sunday to North Carolina to see Robert and Sarah. They had dinner together. The next day, on Monday morning, they went for a short hike together, they spent a very small amount of time together, and then they got back in their car, and they drove nine hours back home to Florida. I want to ask you this morning if you have friends who would spend round-trip 18 hours in the car to come and have dinner with you and breakfast with you and go for a short hike with you. <laughs> this is, I, I hope you're saying I do. In fact, for some of you, you may be friends with them and going, yeah, if I were there, they would have driven to see me also. Their friendship came out of their small group. They don't have similar interests, hobbies. Robert and Sarah are fitness instructors. Let's see, how do I transition to this positively? <laughs> here's, a positive way to here's a positive way to transition. Brian is a chess master. What brings them to such close friendship? It is their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is okay to have friends who have similar interests and of similar age and similar hobbies, and that's a great thing. But today, as we continue our journey through 1 Samuel chapter 20, where we have seen one of the most beautiful friendships in all of Scripture. If you're visiting with us, today is essentially part two of 1 Samuel chapter 20 and these recent chapters of two men, David and Jonathan, who were close, intimate friends. And I believe that God wants you and me to have close friends where he is at the center of those friendships. And that this is not a peripheral thing for a few people to have, like Brian and Debbie, 
or Robert and Sarah. But this is something that God wills for you to have and for me to have. Close Christian friendship is beautiful. And we're going to look at this passage in just a moment and more of this friendship of Jonathan and David. But before we get to today's text, I have just a few things to say about the importance of close friendship. Unlike marriage, um, it is for, that is, close friendship. I'm talking about Christians, that close Christian friendship is for every Christian. Marriage is not for every Christian. And we maybe sometimes don't emphasize that enough. Um, Instead of going to a variety of passages, I mean, we understand the Savior of the world, the Messiah, as he was on the planet, did not marry. But he had very close friends. And if you were to come back and say, well, yeah, he was the Messiah, he was God, and he became man, and that's so we could move then to Paul. Paul not only was not married and had close friends, but he spoke of the value of being single. It is valuable to be married. It is valuable to be single. That is not really what I'm trying to get at here. What I'm trying to get at is that close friendship is for every single believer. Look at the problem that began in this world with human beings. Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. That helper was indeed a wife. That's probably the first thing that you're going to. Again, my emphasis today is not on marriage, but my emphasis is on the first part of that sentence on the screen, Genesis 2.18. That the first problem that existed before sin came into humanity was loneliness. And it was not good. One author says this, he says the first problem in human history, the first problem on the pages of Scripture, the first problem in any human life was not sin, it was solitude. And some of us here today have, to a degree, loneliness. And that loneliness is to be filled in part, not just by acquaintances or friends, but by close, intimate friends where Jesus is at the center of that. We're going to get to the text in a moment. I'm talking about the importance of close friendship. So unlike marriage, it's for every believer. Unlike marriage, friendships transition. What what I'm saying here is the intention, God's will is for marriage to be until death do us part. Friendship is, is not necessarily that way. It's okay. And often, friendships transition in our lives. In Mark 10, in the King James Version, it says, What therefore God has joined together, let man not put asunder. In other words, marriages are for a life. That is God's will and intention. But friendships are not that way. Third, the importance of close friendships. Unlike marriage, friendships are often plural. Can I get an amen on that? I'm saying we don't have multiple wives or multiple husbands. But we can have not just one, but several close friends. Jesus spent the majority of his time with the 12. Within that 12, he had James and John and Peter that he was very close to. That's what I mean by the four. And then we have Lazarus, where Jesus wept and grieved over the loss of his friend. 
Jesus had many, many friends. But within those friendships, there were core friendships. There were friendships that were very close. And that is the subject in 1 Samuel chapter 20. It is the subject of this close friendship of Jonathan and of David. Now, if you haven't been here, there is a crisis in this friendship. So let me kind of set the stage before we get into our text. Hopefully, you have your Bibles or devices open. We're going to be jumping in here to 1 Samuel 20 and verse 18 in just a moment. But let me just set the stage on what the crisis is. These two guys are close. They would easily drive 18 hours round trip to visit each other. They would do it on foot. They would do it on horseback back in the day, but they would do it. So the problem is not their friendship. The problem is the father of one of these two close friends wants to kill the other. Jonathan's father wants to kill Jonathan's closest friend, David. And Jonathan doesn't really believe that. Like all sons, he wants to believe his father is better than that. And so there is this complicated scenario playing out in 1 Samuel 20 where David is trying to get Jonathan to see that his own life, that David's life is in danger from his father, Saul. And they're trying to work this out. And so let's pick it up there at verse 18. 1 Samuel 20 and verse 18. So Jonathan says to David, tomorrow is the new moon festival. You will be missed because your seat will be empty. The day after tomorrow, toward evening, go to the place where you hid when this trouble began. The trouble meaning that that King Saul is after David and wanting to kill him, and there's just this chaos going on. So so go to this, this place and wait by the stone Ezel. That's verse 19, and on to 20. I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I were shooting at a target. Then I will send a boy and say, go find the arrows. If I say to him, look, the arrows are on this side of you, bring them here, then come, because as surely as the Lord lives, you are safe. There is no danger. But if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are beyond you, then you must go, because the Lord has sent you away. And about the matter you and I discussed, remember the Lord is witness between you and me forever." So let's pause there for a moment. So they've set up this situation, and they are communicating in code because lives are at stake here. There may be bad guys in the forest. Saul may be around. We don't know. So they are not taking the risk of communicating one-on-one. So this is how they're going to communicate. And, And Jonathan is going to discover whether his father is actually after David or not, which David knows that he is, and the reader knows that he is, But Jonathan doesn't. And so this is going to be communicated to David. There's a lot of irony here because the person who really needs to be communicated to is is Jonathan, not David. But they've set this up so that they can communicate safely. So are you tracking with me so far? Okay, so back to the text, verse 24. So David hid in the field. And when the new moon festival came, so this is a big party, celebration, feast, lots of good eating and drinking. The king sat down to eat. So, so Jonathan uh, is there. David is hiding away in the field. Verse 25, he sat in his customary place. And notice this little phrase, by the wall. 
So, uh, Chris brought this out a few weeks ago in his sermon. We have a really beautiful and sophisticated piece of literature in front of us for Samuel. And this little phrase we could skip by that he's by, we could skip over easily, he's by the wall. This is a way that the author here, we don't know who wrote this, is telling us that this king is paranoid, that he is full of fear and anxiety. And he is afraid of losing his power. He's actually already lost it. But he's afraid of losing his power. He's afraid that his son, the prince, is not going to ascend to the throne. He's afraid for his family. He is freaking out. And so the author is letting us know this is indicated even by where he's sitting by the wall opposite Jonathan, back to the text. And Abner sat next to Saul, but David's place was empty. Verse 26, Saul said nothing. That day, for he thought, we have an omniscient narrator here in this text, so the reader is learning the thoughts of Saul. Saul said nothing that day. So here's what he's thinking. Something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely he's unclean. So there's something there in 26. Saul knows that David is a man of outstanding character. And this is an important deal. You know, when you get an invite to go to the White House, you don't, like, go hunting or go out. I mean, none of you or me have gotten an invitation to the White House, but if we did, you don't just skip over that. You don't just go somewhere else. If the president says, hey, I'd like you to have dinner with me, here's what we're wearing, black tie, you probably tell your friends about that. So David doesn't show up at the king's at this, at this feast, and the king notices it, and, and he should be there. So, verse 26, is that where we're all? So Saul said, uh, so first he doesn't say, say anything, and then verse 27 is where we are. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. So they, they really partied back in the day, right? So this is a multi-day party. There's something to learn there. That's another sermon uh, we do need to do better at partying and celebrating. So they're on day two of the party, and David is empty again. Then Saul said to his son Jonathan, so now he finally expresses what, what he's thinking. Why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? So here's, here's, this is the story, which is a lie. They've made up this story. This is what we're going to do to figure this out, that David and Jonathan, these two close friends. So Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me, for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town. And my brother, David's brother, Eliab, has ordered me to be there. And so when the oldest sibling of a family, he has authority back in that culture, it's not something you question, he says you got to come. So that's why King David isn't here. And he continues on with this made-up story. If I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brother. So this is the story that, that uh, Jonathan is telling his, his father. That is why he has not come to the king's table. So here's the moment of truth. And the moment of truth is really only for the reader. And the moment of truth is really only for Jonathan. We know we, we, well, it's not even really for the reader. It's really just for, for Jonathan. The reader knows by this point, if you've been reading this book carefully, 
that Saul is, is on a really bad course. I mean, there's a possibility, there's always a possibility of change and, and repentance, so maybe it's a little bit for the reader, but this is mostly what we're reading here for Jonathan to learn what is going on in the homicidal thoughts of his father. So look what happens. This is the moment of truth, verse 30. Saul's anger flared up, meaning he did not buy the story. Did dads tend to know when their kids are telling them stories? Do moms really know when their kids are telling them stories? Moms especially know, and dads know as well. So look at his response in verse 30. The NIV has, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you. This is really strong. In fact, I'm no Hebrew scholar, but Hebrew scholars say that this, and most likely your translation, do not adequately convey the obscene and vulgar words that Saul is using. And so translators struggle with how to translate when the Bible is being real and obscene. It's recording a man who is speaking with obscene language. And, you know, we read these things in Sunday school. And so how do we, how do you translate this? So most translations don't really translate this the way it, it says. Not to criticize them, I think they have a good motive, including the one that I'm reading from and most likely the one. So I'm going to throw one up here that said, hey, we don't really care about that. We're going to bring out what it actually says. 1 Samuel 20, verse 30, the beginning Saul boiled with rage at Jonathan, you stupid son of a whore. He swore at him. That gives a sense of what is going on here in the heart of Saul, who is despicable here. Now the reader can see who is perverse and rebellious here. Saul. What the wicked husbands sometimes do, they blame their wives for being wicked and perverse. This is wicked and evil. And he's being obscene. And the Hebrew Bible records it that way. And that's why I put that translation on the text. Because it is accurate. So what's going on here? He's saying he recognizes the friendship that Jonathan and David have. And he's saying, you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you. The real shame is actually due to the father, Saul here. He is the one who is living and operating a shameful system and life. And he has lost it here. Verse 31, as long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. He wants his son on the throne and he wants to be on the throne. Now send and bring him to me for he must die. Now it's pretty clear, we would think, where Saul is and Jonathan has seen his father but I think the careful reader here is to read between the lines, and although we don't read about how much 
Jonathan loves his father. I think that is the subtext of all of these paragraphs. A rational person, which we are not only rational people, would just leave at this point. But he loves his dad. He doesn't want to see his dad do this. He doesn't want to see his dad actually bring shame to the family and live this way. So he tries to engage with a homicidal father. Verse 32, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. His own son. Kings would have their spears, generally for symbolic reasons, next to them. You'll even see that today in parades and so on. But Saul has his spear near him, and he has several times in rage pulled that weapon out to kill someone, including his own son. And then we have this kind of surprising line, I don't think this is humor. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. I don't think this is humor. It could be. I think what this is, is saying, this son, like all sons, wants his father to be the man that he should be. And so it's, the reader is seeing, it's taking, it's taken Saul hurling a sword at his own son for his son to believe the homicidal nature and anger and evil and power, uh, corrupt power within his own father. This is what we see going on. Let's come back to the text here. This is the moment of truth, and, and the truth is exactly what David knew it was going to be. So Jonathan got up on the t- from the table, verse 34, in fierce anger on that second day of the month, which there should be this feast and partying and drinking, he did not eat. So instead of feasting, we have fasting. We fast, especially when we are desperate for God to help us and for our strength to be in him. This is what Jonathan needs, and so he is fasting because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of his covenantal friend, David. Verse 35, in the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. So here's the the co-op, the the secretive communication, coordinated communication. They go out to this field. He had a small boy with him, and he says to the boy, run and find the arrows I shoot. As the boy ran, He shot an arrow beyond him when the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen. Jonathan called out after him, Isn't the arrow beyond you? Then he shouted, Hurry! Go quickly! Don't stop! The boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. The boy knew nothing of all this. Only Jonathan and David knew. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, Go carry them back to town. So as I read this, I think this is where, in my mind, the chapter uh, should end because they've had this covert communication. Their lives are at risk. That's why they've done all this. And now David knows that Jonathan knows that Saul is actually genuinely homicidal and that his close covenant friend is in great danger. And you think it would end there. But again, reading between the lines here, we not only see, I believe, an a adult son who loves and wants to love his father so desperately, a father who is evil and doing evil. 
But more than that, he loves David. And they want to be together. And they had this, this, this secret communication, and it went down, and the message was, you got to run, David, you are in trouble. When the man who has all authority and power wants you dead, you're generally going to be dead. So we would expect him to flee at this point. But what happens? Verse 41. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times. This is just beautiful. This is the anointed king. Saul is functioning as the king, but David has already been anointed by Samuel. Those of you that are visiting, that happened some time ago. So the reader knows that David is the anointed king. Saul, Jonathan, rather, has given the sword and the robe and the crown and all of the accoutrements that come with being the next king. He's already given them to David. But who is bowing down here? It's David, the king of Israel, the future king of Israel, the anointed king of Israel, who's going to actually point to the greater David, the Messiah. Jesus is of the house and lineage of David. And this humble, anointed, real king is bowing down before Jonathan, who by family and lineage and and typical ancient Near Eastern rites would be the next king. The king is bowing down before his friend with his face to the ground. And then look at verse 41. Then they kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the most. We have two men with absolutely no sexual connotation here. It is just a a wicked thing that our society, some in our society would put that upon here. That is not here. These are two men who love one another in covenantal friendship, who are weeping and who are kissing one another. And I've hit this before, and I'm going to hit it again now, because it's been in the text over and over again, not just for women, but especially for men. We, many of us, most of us, have a long way to go to develop intimate friendships, man to man and woman to woman. And we see the intimacy of their friendship here. They, they, they've got to see each other. They've got to touch. They've got to touch one another. They've got to talk to one another. He bows down, and, and, and they kiss one another. Uh, C.S. Lewis commenting on this reality of man-to-man, woman-to-woman affection that we read about in the scriptures that we do not see in British society, that we do not see in American society very much, he writes this. He says, on a broad historical view, It is, of course, not the demonstrative gestures of friendship, capital F. He's talking about the same thing I'm talking about today. On a broad historical view, it is, of course, not the demonstrative gestures of friendship among our ancestors, but the absence of such gestures in our own societies, in our own society that calls for some special explanation. We, not they, are out of step. We, being British culture, American culture, we, not they, are out of step. And you know, we, we, we see this uh, in, in, around the world. My wife and daughter and I, the last uh, year or two, we have been watching a lot of soccer, European soccer, Premier League soccer, Champions League soccer. Anybody out there? Nobody, probably. Nobody does, except for the Ernst family. Some of you got to come over and watch some of this stuff. 
Um, there's a reason I'm talking about soccer right now. You know, one of the, the, uh, the greatest teams that has the superstars on it is uh, Paris Saint-Germain. PSG, they're called. And they've got these three superstars, uh, Neymar and Messi and Mbappe. But my wife really likes Marco Verratti, who's a little bit shorter than this pulpit, this guy. And he is a ferocious guy out on that field. He doesn't score the goals, but he is working hard. And they have this culture in European soccer where they, the, these guys, they've been playing the, this game for years. And they have the same refs. Like, we're watching it enough that we recognize the refs on the field, my daughter and my wife and I. And so it's very interesting, Marco Verratti, this little Italian guy, when he engages, which they do every match, arguing with the ref who never changes the call, but they still just argue with them every single week. When Verratti argues with the ref, he puts his hands on the ref's shoulders. He touches him. I remember the first time I saw that. I mean, can you imagine, like, a linebacker in the NFL going up to a ref? I mean, the flag would be thrown. You don't touch a ref. But in Italian culture, I mean, he's got his, his hands on the ref's shoulders, and he's, like, pleading with his friend, the referee friend, like, you got to retrieve that yellow card. You've got, you could just see him in Italian just going off and off and off. But that's with the ref. With his teammate, Neymar, Neymar Jr., he, he, he will kiss him on the cheek when he scores a goal. They will put on their social media. These, these are manly men. These are not, as far as I know, very godly men. But I, So don't go searching them out. But they... They... they they kiss one another on international television. They have a brotherhood. Saul and David, Saul's son Jonathan and David have a relationship that is absolutely beautiful. And they kiss each other, just like Neymar and Verratti kiss each other on international TV today. They wept together. These are symptoms, beautiful symptoms of a healthy friendship. I'm not on a mission to get us to kiss each other. I'm on a mission for us to have close friendships that might, that might lead us to be intimate in ways, men with men, women with women, in ways that we are frankly uncomfortable, unfortunately, in British culture and in American culture. All right, let's finish up here. Verse 42. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord. This is what has brought David and Jonathan together. It's the Lord that has brought them together. Just like what brought Robert and Sarah with their friends after a nine-hour drive, Brian and Debbie it was not their hobbies, but it was the Lord that brought them together. The Lord is witness between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. 
apart from one other brief meeting, this was the last time these two would see each other. And I think they were aware of it, that this could be the end, last time they saw each other. And I think this is why, after this covert operation, they, they expose and risk their lives as they actually come together. I want to make one other point in this text before we finish up with a, a few points of application here. Um, I want to highlight, which I have implicitly already in this sermon, the very different families these two best friends came from. One is from the White House family. One is from um, the, the Upper East Side, Manhattan. And the other one is from Stockton. One of them has a robe and a crown and an inheritance and is going to be the next king. The other one has some sheep and he has a staff. These two guys are not brothers from the same elite fraternity house. These are not brothers from the same gang in Stockton. These are two guys from very different families and societies and culture. They are both Israelites, yes, but they are from the opposite ends of that nation and that culture. And their friendship is centered on the Lord. And we see Saul throwing jabs at David earlier by not saying his name. Did you notice that? And by describing him not by name, but as the son of Jesse. You are in, in secret communication behind my back, Saul is thinking, with the son of Jesse from Stockton? <laughs> All right. Give me another city. Any, any place I choose, I'm going to be in trouble. I thought... I thought uh, all right, Barstow, there we go. You can uh, rebuke me after the service. All right, let's get back to um, this and, and, and finish, finish up today. Uh, we have seen the importance of Christian friendship very briefly, the essentials of close Christian friendship. If you are going to have close Christian friendship, you are going to have God-centered mutual love. That is what David and Jonathan had. We've already talked about that, so I'm not going to say that much about it. What I want to say is if you don't have it, that you would have friends that would drive nine hours to see you. That, in, in God's grace, so you might be thinking, how does that happen? It, it's not easy. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But I, the main thing I want you to hear is that God is able to help you to develop and discover a friendship like that. There is hope in the Lord and his grace is available to you to have a friendship like this. Uh, if the nine hours thing is something that you can't connect with, maybe this is. Crises often happen at midnight or in the middle of the night. Do you have a friend that you can call? I'm talking man to man, woman to woman. Do you have a friend that you could call at 2 a.m. and they get in their car and they come to your home? If your answer is yes, this message is to encourage you to keep and, and cherish and cultivate that friendship. If your answer is no, today is a significant day, I want to suggest, if you want to look at the Word of God, because the Word of God wants you to have a friendship like that, man to man, 
woman to woman. So I'm talking now, as we close out these next couple minutes, the essentials of close Christian friendship. God-centered mutual love. We looked at this last week. A second thing is mutual sacrifice. Close friends sacrifice for one another. And they sacrifice all the way. This is how Jesus talks about friendship. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Last week and today is a theology of friendship. David and Jonathan are just one example. Ruth and Naomi another. The closest Christian friends have a heart that is willing to lay life down for one another. Mutual sacrifice. Uh, Look at what Jesus says to Peter in John 21. He says, I tell you the truth, and, and Peter was one of his core closest friends. I tell you the truth, when you were younger and you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. So this is Jesus speaking. It's in quotes. Now the writer John helps us. What is Jesus talking about? Jesus said this, John tells the reader. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he, would say, then he said to him, follow me. Decades before Peter would be crucified for his friendship with Jesus, Jesus tells him, you're going to die because of your friendship with me. And Peter did. This is the kind of friendship, I'm talking about literal walking around, having meals together, that Jesus and Peter had. So mutual sacrifice is one of the essentials. A third essential of close friendship is mutual intimacy. Again, we looked at this last week, John 15. Jesus says, I no longer call you servants. He's talking to his 12 friends, one of whom would betray him. That's another sermon. Sometimes friends betray us. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. Close friends reveal intimate things that they don't reveal with other friends. That's what Jesus is saying in John 15. Proverbs 18, 24. A man of too many friends comes to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Those of you who are outgoing and make friends when you run into the gas station, that actually can be a hindrance, is what Proverbs 18 is saying. That dynamic, that personality. If all you have are a million friends, but you are not intimate with any of them, you don't have a core Christian friend, man-to-man, a Jonathan and David, a Ruth and Naomi, you need someone closer than a brother So that can be ruinous. Too many friends comes to ruin. There's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So finally, and now we're going to close. Preachers always say we're going to close like seven times as they're trying to finish up. We've looked at the importance of close friendship. We've looked at the essentials of close friendship, the importance of it, the essentials of it, and now finally, and very briefly, the obtaining of it. For those of you that don't have it, I want to say it rarely just happens. Some of you have this going on already. Praise God. 
I'm speaking now to those of you who don't. You're not going to go home and it just, it just happens. Um, there are three aspects of modern culture that create unique barriers to deep relationships. Busyness, technology, and mobility. Are you too busy to have a, a Jonathan and David, a Ruth and Naomi kind of friendship? You need to look at your schedule. If you are a Christian, you will repent of your busy schedule. That's what you will do. So repent of your busy schedule. That still doesn't mean you're going to develop a friendship, but that's something that you need to do. Technology can be an asset to friendship. Hey, I'll meet you here at this time. It's a great thing to text. But if you spend hour after hour in front of a screen, then technology is perhaps getting in the way of intimate friendship. And then mobility. We have a culture where we can up and move, especially those of us who've lived in California for quite a while. We can up our standard of living several fold by selling our homes and moving, and it's not a sin to do that. Um, many many have, have done that. We all know many who have done that, including folks on the screen here today. That, that, that's not a sin. I'm just simply saying that we need to think about moving and make sure that the Lord is in that. And friendship is important. In previous centuries and millennia, people stayed in the same places forever. And so that wasn't a hindrance. But our ability to, I mean, when my oldest son was a little boy growing up in Cool and Auburn, the last thing in the world I would thought he would do is move to some terrible place like New York City. <laughs> it's not a sin, but it does make long-term friendships difficult. And then when you get there, now you've got to hit restart and, and rebuild. You, you, he's he's got to have close friendships there. It rarely just happens. Um, we'll, we'll skip over that so we can finish up here. It rarely just happens. I want to suggest, I'm speaking now to those who don't have a David and Jonathan, a Ruth and Naomi kind of intimate close friendship, man to man, woman to woman. Uh, I want to encourage that you join a small group. It is out of that that you go kind of to the next level friendship. This is how God often works in our church and in our culture in America today in the lives of believers, is that out of that small group, there will, it will happen. You will find someone. And, and Robert and, and Sarah and Brian and Debbie spent many hours together in a small group. And out of that, their friendship went beyond that. So that's a question to ask. Do I have friends that I get together with outside of Sunday morning gathering or a small group or a men's Bible study or women's Bible study? Those are all good things. But that's not intimate friendship usually. It, it, it often takes other times that you are together. I mean, that's just basic. So join a small group. Um, pray for that to happen. Pray. Ask God. He will hear you. And pray for a close friend, whether you are married, whether you are single. If you do not have someone like this, man to man, woman to woman, pray for that. Ask for help. You, can, you say, gosh, I, I really need this, but I, I don't think I can do any of this. I, I would ask you on your prayer card to grab a prayer card today and write on there, I, I need some help with this, and, and we will get you some, some, some help with this. This is, this is what we want. We want people 
who love God and who love me so much that they'll drive 18 hours round trip to have dinner and spend some time with me in the morning. Let's, let's bow our heads and pray together. Lord, we've seen this incredible friendship of Jonathan and David in these recent chapters. And we uh, confess to you, many of us here have undershot the importance of friendship according to the Bible and for Christians. Maybe some of us have overshot marriage, which is also really important. But we see in looking at Scripture today that friendship is for everyone and marriage isn't. And so I want to pray especially for those here today who may be single and lonely. I pray, God, that they would find a Jonathan, a Naomi, and have intimate friendship, and that you would be glorified, that their lives would be more joyful and more lived more gloriously for Jesus. It's in his name we pray.